This is an ABC podcast. How good is Australia? I will continue to work tirelessly to advocate for Dr Young's interests. We make no apologies for standing up for one of our citizens. A shameful and pathetic attempt. That is such a bubble question. I'm just going to leave that one in the bubble. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Fran Kelly from Insiders. And I'm Patricia Carvellis from RN Drive. It's truly delightful to see you face-to-face, Fran. I made a big deal about it online yesterday. People were getting excited. We never see each other. Well, we do see each well, other. Really You're such a drama ever. queen. We never see each other. We occasionally see each other, but we do record the podcast from different states. There's quite a lot to talk about. Oh, there is so much going on at the moment, but I think it's important that we start with some pretty terrible news yesterday, and that is the the, the news that um, Yong Heng Jun, who's an Australian Chinese writer, political commentator, has been formally arrested in China on suspicion of committing crimes of espionage. Now, he, in fact, was detained back in January. Um, he's since that time had no access to lawyers, no access to family. Um, he's, there's been no charge until this charge was announced yesterday. And I think it's, you know, Australia's response really, and the response from the Prime Minister, was very strong. But these suggestions that he's acted uh, as, as, as a spy for Australia are absolutely untrue and, uh, and we'll, be, we'll be protecting and seeking to support our citizen as we have been doing now for some period of time. We make no apologies for standing up for one of our citizens. They have their system of, of, uh, of justice in China. It may be different to ours, but uh, that's, they're a sovereign nation and we respect that. But we do expect Australians, indeed all citizens, to have their human rights uh, appropriately uh, looked after. That was a pretty strong response and, of course, it is more complicated now. Official charges are laid because there is a formal legal process going on in China. But the Australian government saying it's ridiculous, he's not a spy for us. They are being very clear about it and I think they've really strengthened the language that they've been using around this. We've seen a significant, noticeable, there's no missing it, shift in the language that the government is using. That softly, softly approach that has been going on now for seven months is gone. And there's a reason for that. The government was trying to use that approach, as you Mm. know, Fran, because it was, you know, he hadn't been yet charged, had he? So they were trying trying to get him out before charges were being detained. They were trying to stop this thing happening. Now it's happened. They haven't been able to stop it. There is some criticism that perhaps that softly, softly approach has failed. Well, okay, you you know, sliding doors, you can't see what the alternative would have produced. There is generally, I think, a reluctance to go down the megaphone diplomacy route. But right now, the government's, you know, thrown it all out and gone, we've got no other choice. We have to raise this issue very strenuously. We heard the Home Affairs Minister, Peter Dutton, using incredibly strong language, the Prime Minister as well, Maurice Payne, the Foreign Minister, doing the same. Now, she's obviously, you know, it's her job to talk about this, and she will be, I suspect, every day now until uh, all of the legal processes are gone through. I think it'll be interesting to see now if Australia goes down the road of trying to get some kind of international pressure on China, now that it is public and formal, whether Australia will try and get a coalition of other countries and their diplomats putting pressure here. It's hard to know what this is about if this man is being held kind of as a hostage in, for instance, the the Huawei dispute, you know, signalling China's um, unhappiness on another front. That's certainly, you know, two Canadian citizens are being held and have been held for a while now in exactly that situation. So it's really difficult to quite understand and know what is China's big frame here. 
And China is being really, really muscular in how it's responding to Australia's stronger language too. So this is yeah. becoming quite a thing. I mean, China, China said butt out, didn't they? Absolutely. They're saying stop hyping up this case. You Respect know, our rule of law. We urge the Ministry of Foreign Affairs spokesman said just, uh, we're recording this Thursday morning, said on the Wednesday, we urge the Australian side to respect China's judicial sovereignty, stop hyping up the issue and pressuring China and stop interfering in any way in China's handling of the case. So it's not an easy one for Australia to handle because there is the other side of the relationship, of course, our ongoing trade relationship, which we've been trying to protect at the same time. Will there be implications there? Well, just on that, I think we've seen a change of language from the Prime Minister, our Prime Minister, on the trade issue too. Scott Morrison's been at G7. He's been there uh, meeting with the leaders of these major countries. He had a meeting with Donald Trump. He had a meeting with Boris Johnson, uh, Shinzo Abe and a few others. And perhaps it was his meeting that Donald Trump that precipitated this change of language that I'm sure you've noticed, PK. The, at the end of the trip, the Prime Minister was talking about the trade tensions between China and the US. And up till now, our line has very much been, nobody wins from a trade war. We don't take sides. We urge both parties to sit down and work this out. Well, we're hearing something a bit different from Scott Morrison now. He's talking about a gear change in world trade rules. He talks about putting it in perspective, saying the world worked and organised the trade rules to allow China to raise the the situation for all its people to get its economy growing. It's done that. That's worked. Now we're at a tension point that would always arise. We're going to be predictable. We need a gear change now. In other words, we need to ratchet the rules so that China doesn't keep benefiting from being treated as a developing country. So this is Australia's new mantra, I think, that China's no longer a developing country. It's developed. It's a power and the rules need to change to reflect that and it's got to obey the rules. And that helps Australia in directly in another issue around the whole international debate around climate change, but it also sees Australia, I think, siding much more closely with US in this trade war. We're probably going to have to prepare for some consequences Well, to there's this. already been consequences. I mean, the... the the Treasurer and the Prime Minister are right when they say nobody wins in a trade war. There's already been an impact on our trade figures in the last quarter or two. We saw a direct impact on the stock market this week in response to Donald Trump's tweets and ratcheting up of the tariffs on China. So there's already been a direct economic effect. But there's luckily for Australia in the short term, there's been a bit of a bounce for us too, because if products aren't being sold to the US, or I mean, if products aren't being bought from the US because of tariffs, China's looking around and hey presto, suddenly more of our iron ore is going to China, for instance. So there's also been an uptick for Australia on some fronts that has sort of acted as a bit of a, a bulwark against the impact, but that will shift. I think that's why we're hearing the Treasurer, the uh, Head of Prime Minister and Cabinet, Phil Gachins, unusually gave an interview today, starting to talk the economy up a bit, I think, because there was a lot of fear around, oh my God, this trade war. And I think the language we're hearing from government now is going to be a little bit more positive. We know that the government wants to do that. The Treasurer is like the, the chief cheerleader for the economy at the moment. He gave a big speech, putting some pressure on business too to try and reinvest and think about um, innovation and think about the way that it can also ultimately deliver wage growth for its workers. He's got a bit of blowback for that speech, actually, interestingly, from some business leaders who say, hey, 
butt out. You don't tell us how to run our well, businesses. Well, I mean, I don't agree with that. I think it is the Treasurer's job to do that, to show leadership and to say, OK, we've got these weaknesses. Uh, one of the weaknesses is there's not enough investment going on from our major corporations and, and we're losing com- competitiveness. But of course, it, so long as the government also has the tax treatments in place that allow companies or encourage companies to invest. So that's the other side of that. But I have no problem with the Treasurer of Australia putting that message out. We are lacking competitiveness. We are falling behind in some fronts and we don't have enough money spent and invested in research and development in this country and innovation. We need to do much, much better, but government has to be working with business to get the the terms right for that. Interestingly, Labor's been coming back as an attack on that saying, hang on a minute, government needs to lead by example and they're not spending enough on Mm. research and development and innovation. So look, that's another argument. Look, we're going to speak a little more with David Spears, who's our guest today from Sky News. But there's another story that's um, just breaking. We're recording this Thursday morning and it will really become, I think, quite a dominant story. Attorney General Christian Porter is essentially poised to release these draft laws. I I haven't seen them yet, so I'm not going to pretend to be an expert, but we have some indication of what they'll say aimed at protecting people of faith, people of religion from discrimination. So he's going to release what is known as an exposure draft of this religious discrimination legislation at this speech at the Great Synagogue in Sydney. Uh, I know that there are some that are a bit grumpy that he's sort of done this without uh, consultation. They were, you know, I think they wanted to affect the draft before it was released. Yeah. And now the government's got the march on them. And I think this is um, Christian Porter being very smart, very tactical. He's already indicated he wants this done quickly and passed by the end of the year. He doesn't want time for this to ferment. And I think the fact that he's delivering this to the faith groups at the Great Synagogue is a real sign that uh, he wants to be in charge of this. It absolutely shows that. And I reckon this was one of the big first tests for the government. And what I think this demonstrates is that, you know, they, they don't want to get wedged in this culture war on this and they want to take the leadership. It's really fascinating to watch. David Spears, political editor with Sky News. Welcome back to the party room. Very good to be here, Fran and PK. How are you? We are fit as fiddles, both of us, um, and we're excited to have you on the party room. Look, I want to kick off with something which we didn't quite expect to be released the way it has, but it has been. This is the Attorney General Christian Porter, who's uh, essentially announced an exposure draft for religious discrimination, blindsiding really many of the religious leaders who thought they would have more of a, you know, more of a consultative uh, role in exactly what those laws looked like. I haven't seen the legislation. I don't know if you have yet, David. It's Thursday morning when we're recording. But they're Mm. clearly going for a very conservative approach here. What do you make of the way he's gone, you know, first out there without, you know, saying this is what we're going to do, the way that the government's approaching this? Look, I, I too am yet to see the exposure draft. I think the thinking here is actually to be inclusive with the religious leaders and other stakeholders. There's about 80 or 100 in the room that he'll be talking to. And he wanted them to hear first rather than reading about it in the newspaper what he's on about. It is an exposure draft. That means from next week, as I understand it, consultations will begin and they'll run with roundtable sessions over a couple of months before the bill is finalised and and then put to Parliament later in the year. So there's still a way to go in this and I think he's still open to some change. But you're never going to please everyone with this. This is why it's been such 
a difficult one now for successive Prime Ministers. Also, you're not going to please everyone, that's for sure, but we will need to see the fine print because although it's supposed to be you know, conservative within broadly the typical yeah. anti-discrimination architecture, there were some stories around this week suggesting that there might be some sort of dents put in that architecture that will satisfy some of the demands of those who want this religious discrimination bill and, in fact, want more. They want a Religious Discrimination Act. So the... Attorney-General has already said he doesn't see what he expects that this bill will be able to, for instance, deal with the Israel Folau situation should it arise again. So what sort of um, well, uh, yeah, trapdoors do you think for. might be there? Yeah, it's, it's a good word. So, I mean, we've been told until now this won't be the Religious Freedom Act uh, that some a small number in the Liberal Party had, had argued for. That would be the stepping stone to a Bill of Rights. They're not going down that path. This will be a Religious Discrimination Act. And we were told this will simply replicate the sort of uh, anti-discrimination provisions that are there for race, for gender, for age and so on to stop discrimination in other areas. That makes sense. Pretty hard to argue. You shouldn't mm-hmm. extend that. Where the trapdoor you refer to, there's a good word, because uh, we also have read just uh, you know in the last couple of days that there'll also be an exemption for people of religion not to be taken to the Human Rights uh, yep. Discrimination Commission for anything they do or say based on their religious views that could put them in breach of some of those other areas of discrimination. That, I think, is going to be a really interesting... If that's the sort of way to get you know, the likes of Israel Folau off, um, he, he, you know, in terms of his current situation... That's, I think, where the most sensitive part of this will be. And exemptions. It's all about exemptions. And I know Mm. that some of the uh, LGBTI groups are worried that this act would override some of the state anti-discrimination acts, which may Mm. uh, be a little bit more watertight. So let's also look at how those state and federal anti-discrimination acts are going to interact. I think proponents of doing something in this space have struggled to date to really spell out where the problem is. Israel Folau, I don't think, is the poster of where the problem is here. I I think they've struggled to really present why we need a law at all. But I can also see that those of religious faith do believe their rights are being eroded gradually over time. They're they're talking about where we'll be in 10 or 20 years Mm. from now uh, as we become more and more of um, a a secular society. That's the concern that's being expressed here. It's a hard one to sell, though, if you can't point to a couple of key examples of why we need this new law. Yeah, it's it's very preemptive. It's society's Mm. changing. And I, I spoke to somebody who made that right clear on my radio show, who religious leader, saying to me, it's, yeah, we are preempting a society that's changing. Mm. We don't, you know, we're seen, our views, our values are seen as out of date. We want to protect our right to have these views and values and, uh, and, you know, and obviously it's within the religious context. What I'm interested in, David, is the way this will affect these other debates we've been having. Remember, I just think it's worth having a moment to remember the Prime Minister saying he was going to ensure that, um, you know, gay kids couldn't be kicked out of religious mm-hmm. schools. Remember that? What's happened to that? Uh, yeah, what's, what's happened, happened to, to that? that? But this, that has a... Well, that's not part of this, though. It's not, but no. what, are the, what is the implication from this? Because those schools are religious schools. It's there has to, to be a legal implication. It's hard to divorce them. For everyone listening, what has happened to that is the Attorney-General has flicked that, that consideration off to the Australian Law Reform Commission, who are not going to report back for some months, I don't think. Mm. But meanwhile, the religious schools are saying, well, we want this bill to positively support 
our right to employ those who uphold our religious values, whether they're Christian or Muslim or Jewish, whatever they are. So for the people of faith who are running these schools and institutions, they are very directly linked. But the um, Attorney General, I think, is trying to sidestep the debate right now by having hiving mm. it off to the Australian Law Reform Commission. Is Look, that where yeah, we're at? Christian Porter has said, you know, in defence of what he's doing here, that it's a shield not a sword. Now, what does he mean by that? And it's a, it's a pretty good way of describing what he's trying to do. He doesn't want to give a, a, a positive right to discriminate for those of religious faith, but he wants them protected with the shield against discrimination against them. The difference is, as you say, church-run institutions, so religious schools and so on, they will ultimately have some sort of positive right to discriminate because that certainly within the government is, and I would argue within Labor as well, uh, a strongly held view that they should be able to hire and fire based on uh, some religious belief. And as I say, I think that's a fairly widely held position across the parliament, but that will be a separate measure to what we're talking about here. David, the story up until this point, and Patricia and I have already been talking about this, is Scott Morrison's trip to the G7. Mm. Um, He met a lot of leaders while he was there. He was pretty high profile. In amongst that very small handpicked group, um, he's not a, Australia's not a G7 country, of course, so it's unusual that he is there. But you've seen a lot of these meetings from a distance. How do you think Scott Morrison went? And did you, I was talking earlier about noticing a change in Australia's messaging on the trade war between China and the US. Look, I think Scott Morrison, look, it was good that he was there. Uh, great to get a, uh, an invite to something like that. And he probably did the right thing, I think, in general terms, in the way that he handled himself. He didn't pick any uh, fights or end up in the middle of any of those um, you know, rather interesting messes between the French and the Brazilian presidents and their wives and so on. He stayed clear of that <laughs> and some of the other contentious uh, issues, built friendships, no doubt, or at least uh, stronger relationships, which is a good thing. That's why you, you know, the main reason why you go to these things, I suppose. Yes, his language does seem to have toughened, I think, a little bit in in uh, in the U.S.-China trade dispute, uh, in in saying that absolutely uh, Donald Trump's got a point in the complaints that he's raising, but we all want to see the temperature lowered. The G7 itself, what did it achieve? Well, I mean, it it was never going to end this trade war, and it didn't. But we did see the temperature lower a little, I think, with some of the language Trump was using on his way out of uh, France. It didn't resolve the situation in the Strait of Hormuz. Uh, in fact, we haven't seen more countries jump on board this apparently multinational mission that we're a part of. Um, it certainly didn't solve the problems around climate change or even the fires in Brazil. So there's a lot it didn't get done, but that's not to say these gatherings aren't uh, at least a bit worthwhile. How about the way Australia's been handling this other issue, which is kind of running concurrently now um, in relation to this uh, Chinese-Australian doctor who has uh, been arrested in China? We're really using much more muscular language around all of this, and clearly it's aggravating China. Is, is Australia now trying to build a, almost a campaign around this guy because clearly we've, we've lost through the softly, softly approach? Mm. This is a real worry, Uh, I think there's always a difficult decision for governments to make uh, of both persuasions. When this happens, and we remember it with Stern Hu uh, during the Rudd government, do you go the the quiet uh, behind-the-scenes diplomacy uh, or do you go for the public pressure and get the megaphone out? I think largely until now, when it comes to Yang Hengjun, we've seen the quiet diplomacy approach that flipped this week with mm. the news of his formal arrest and the charge that he's facing. Uh, I think that was the right move for Maurice Payne. I thought her language in the statement, and good honour for backing it up the next day on camera, uh, was much, much stronger than we've seen from her to date, and that was certainly noticed. But at the end of the day, 
what we see is just how powerless Australia is in this sort of situation with either approach, with the quietly, quietly or the public pressure. China is shrugging its shoulders. It's in no mood, particularly with what's going on in Hong Kong right now, I would suggest, to show that uh, it's you know, suddenly in support of democracy and, uh, and transparency and, uh, and a free and fair legal system. Uh, I just have really grave concerns uh, mm. for this Australian mm. man and the situation he's in, and I just don't think there is much Australia can do. Now, it seems, though, that Australia's going to go, you know, go out fighting, though, for him, which is really, I think, which encouraging. Which is pleaded with the Prime Minister to do. Unless I mean... you're Michael McCormack. The Nationals' leader, Deputy Prime Minister, he was acting Prime Minister on the day. This was some hours after the news broke, some hours after Maurice Payne had put out that, as I say, uh, sensibly worded but strongly worded statement. He's asked by reporters about the situation of this Australian man. Are you disappointed? And he couldn't even say that he was disappointed or concerned and then quickly flipped as quickly as he could to, gee, we better take advantage of all the trade opportunities uh, that are on offer when it comes to China. Look, I just thought, here's a guy who's been held for seven months in China without charge, without proper legal access, without being able to see his family. He needs Australia's Mm. leaders to have his back. That's his only chance to stand up for him. Here's the acting prime minister who wasn't even willing to offer one word of criticism of China's behaviour. I just thought that was either really bad staff work in not briefing him up or just a, a bad miss for Michael McCormack. I think it's a really good one that you raise because I saw that and I just could not believe... I just actually reread the quotes mm. thinking, am I missing something? This is not a new case, as you point out, David, seven months down the road, you know? And even if it he's was... He's a cabinet minister. <laughs> like, he's in there... Uh, Within the government, people were slapping their foreheads over this. Being generous to Michael McCormack, many think, look, maybe it was just bad briefing. He wasn't aware of the situation. Seven months. You've got to know where you stand on issues like this. Well, particularly when we remember Tim Fisher this week and the stand that he took at great political cost to he and his national party at the time on gun law reform. You know, really, do we want the Nats going Mm. that far to support our trade relationship with China when we're talking about an Australian man who, as I say, needs his government's support right now? I want to sort of pivot, if we can, to one of the huge stories of this week, which literally has meant I've been glued to the revelations coming out of the ICAC, ICAC as it's known in New South Wales, which is examining the circumstances around cash donations of $100,000 given to New South Wales Labor in 2015, the LD bag as it's become known with, you know, just a hundred grand, as you do, as you do, hundred grand. Not brown paper bags these days. <laughs> no, nah, just They're put not it big in enough, David, for a hundred grand. You um, need an LD bag. <laughs> yeah. And look, the revelations stink and that's yeah. putting it incredibly mildly. That's being very polite. Explain the significance to us of this inquiry, David. Yeah, what has struck, you. struck this, to you? What's, what have you gone, oh my, oh my, well, you know, this, we've this lost the general, we've lost the secretary of the New South Wales well, Labor Party. this is the point. This is extraordinary because you're talking about not some flunky, you're talking about the, the top officials, right, in mm. the New South Wales branch of the Labor Party. Now, you know, they'll, they'll, when people ask uh, various politicians about this this week, they say, oh, rules have changed since then, we've cleaned up foreign donations. Don't forget back then, New South Wales had cleaned up property developer donations, right? This was the whole point. So they put these rules in place. And here you have, on the evidence presented, we need to use the allegedly word a bit here still, the, the senior officials allegedly either deliberately breaking those rules or turning a blind eye when they knew the rules had been broken and money had you know, come in this big uh, alley bag from a property developer. Now, that, I think, raises the big concern. Is this the culture in the party? Are they willing to break donation rules in 
what, as we all know, is an arms race between the two parties when it comes to raking in the dough and then spending it at election time. What are the rules worth if, on what the evidence has been at ICAC this week, they're willing to break them or turn a blind eye just to you know, pile up another mountain of cash. And this is a lot of money. So someone somewhere was deliberately breaking it. And then, as you say, it's not every day $100,000 turns up in cash in a plastic bag on your desk. So it would prompt questions if you weren't mm. the one flouting the rules. And even if you weren't the one who deliberately broke the rules, clearly this amount of money is central to whatever campaign you're running. So, you know, people knew and understood that this money was needed to participate, as you say, in that arms race between the major parties. And that's, yeah. you know, it all goes back to the problem of campaign funding. It's the funding. culture. It's the culture. It's the culture it when it comes to donations. A couple of other points to make too. New South Wales ICAC, how many political scouts <laughs> has he claimed now? Um, that's another one. Uh, we're not hearing much Jang from Mo. the Libs on this either, are we, really? No, no, we're not. Look, they've got their own. I mean, you know, as I say, ICAC in New South Wales has cost them plenty on their side as well. Huang Zhang Mo's claimed another political scalp inadvertently. Sam Dastiari uh, won and, and now Kayla Manane. But I think it also underscores the need for a national ICAC. I'm not saying there's any evidence of wrongdoing at the national level, but what we've seen this week is a very powerful example of why a corruption body like this is important in our system. Voters need to know, taxpayers need to know when this sort of stuff is going on, particularly in the lead up to an election. What is the danger in this for Anthony Albanese? This is state New South Wales, but that's a major powerful office and operation, as we know, within Labor federally. How does Anthony Albanese keep clear of this? Can he? It's a good question. Look, uh, yes, it's damaging. Anything like this is damaging for the brand. It's his branch. Don't forget, once upon a time, he used to work in that Sussex Street uh, Mm. head office as well as the Assistant General Secretary a long time before these events, of course, but he can't divorce himself from, you know, if if we're talking about cultural problems in Sussex Street, if it's more than just one or two rogue staffers there, but as as I say, uh, the evidence allegedly uh, is is suggesting that we're talking about from the top down, this culture of breaking donation rules, that is something that, yes, he's going to have to make sure is fixed, is cleaned up if there is going to be confidence in the party. Yeah, and look, this is still unfolding. Yes, Kayla Manane has been stood down, but she's incredibly distressed. She's giving evidence. Um, She says she would do something very different now. She's sobbing uh, in ICAC. I mean, this is Mm. just so dramatic. Uh, And she's also agreed she gave misleading information to the Electoral Commission when they asked about the source of the $100,000 donation. So this is unfolding. We're recording on a Thursday morning. But seriously, this is the stuff of it is actually the stuff of fiction. I feel like I'm watching kind of sadly. Uh, we know that it's an true. ABC drama. Maybe this is the next ABC drama. Um, another issue affecting Labor at a federal level, and in particularly in the Victoria Labor, Victorian Labor, is the John Setka issue, David. Now, Labor Anthony Albanese had a win on Tuesday. The Supreme Court ruled it was not within its jurisdiction to hear John Setka's case. So that's kind of a win. That means Labor in theory can expel John Setka, which is what he was challenging. There's a, It's not really the end game here, but Labor can do that, which is what Anthony Albanese has declared. The, the finding from the court was a little iffy, but nevertheless, Anthony Albanese is standing is ground here and says John Setka will go. But even if that happens, 
this remains a problem, doesn't there? Because he and remains the, the head yeah. of one of the major branches of this very powerful union. Look, this is a win, this court ruling for Albanese, because he hasn't had many wins in this particular saga of trying to boot out John Setka. It's taking a lot longer and straining Anthony Albanese's authority a lot more than he would have liked. Had this court ruling gone the other way this week, boy, this would have been trouble for Anthony Albanese. So I'm sure he was mightily relieved and called a snap press conference very much to to, to make that point uh, immediately afterwards. Look, there's still, as you say, a bit of technicality around having to go through the Victorian branch. I assume that will all happen. They're not going to embarrass their leader over this. So I assume uh, John Secker at some point soon will be formally booted out of the party. But uh, will he stay as a union leader is is very open as a question here. Yes, his branch members are defiant. Uh, they don't want anyone telling them who their union leader is in Victoria. They want to stick with him. But he won't be... And look, arguably, he could still have a lot of clout in that position, but he won't be able to argue the case for his members within the forums of the Labor Party. Yes, but what's it going to take for him to go? He will have to be persuaded to make that decision, won't he? I mean, there's a significant leaders from other unions backing him. There is no persuading him. Well, the only thing that might persuade him is... Jackie Lamb is the other unionists who might be persuaded by Jackie Lambie saying, well, if you don't dump John Setka or get rid of him, then I'm going to vote for the federal government's ensuring integrity um, bill, which is not what the unions want. Is that going to persuade those other union leaders who are standing by John Ke- it Setka? It hasn't to, so to far, though, has it, David? I mean, it hasn't. No, it hasn't. It hasn't. And you've got, what, a dozen But the rubber's about leaders. to hit the road on that bill. It is. You've got to, Look, what really matters is the CFMMEU and the national executive of that union. Uh, we've already seen reports of some strain and some differences uh, amongst them. If they reach a unified position that Setka's got to go, that's what will matter. Until then, I really don't think it, it, it's going to count at all. We've heard plenty of other union leaders from the AWU to, I mean, even uh, Sally McManus uh, herself uh, at the ACTU. None of that seems to have mattered. I think what the only thing that will matter is when the pressure comes on from within his own union. David, as always, fantastic to have you on the party room. See you, David. And of course, uh, you'll be hanging around our corridors next year. Oh, well, thank you, guys. Great to be here. Okay, time for questions now. Not too much time because we've had such a great discussion. There's so much going on. But we do have a question from Tracy about the recent passing of Bob Hawke and Tim Fisher. Tracy asks, they were from opposite sides of politics and very different personalities. But what they shared was idiosyncratic authenticity, courage and values. Have we really lost those types of leaders a mere two decades later? Is the 24-7 media cycle really to blame? I think the 24-7 media cycle is partly to blame. I don't think it's all to blame. I think that there is a lack of courage, actually, and values-driven politicians. It's been getting worse and worse uh, for more than two decades now. So many of our politicians have just simply come up through um, what you call the professional ranks of... of The machine. The machines, yeah. And the machines could include, you know, law firms and things like that, but generally not a broad cross-section of of society. Not a lot of shopkeepers, not a lot of brickies, not a lot of ambos, not a lot of, you know, nurses, all that, all of that. And I think that has an impact on it. Um, But I do think the 24-7 news cycle has really made people alert to the risks because one slip up and there you are, you are the news cycle for a moment. Of course, the good part of that is then you're not the news cycle the next day because it's moved on and that's a bad thing for policy development. But I think generally there is a lack of courage. I think we've seen polls having too much impact on how politicians behave and and the values they espouse. And, um, you know, I think generally we're just a bit more blamange in the parliament. I think that's broadly right, but I don't think it's impossible to see 
interesting or out-of-the-box figures emerge. And you Who know, are they? Where are they? Yeah, okay, I've actually got a few examples. I think we're seeing them perhaps out of the major parties. Oh, sure. Right, yeah. But that matters, I think, because if you look at it parliament-wide, there are, you know, interesting people emerging. In the major parties, who are they? Even Scott Morrison, I'm going to be controversial here, even Scott Morrison and even, um, you know, Anthony, Anthony Albanese, Albanese, both of those guys are just, I wouldn't, it doesn't mean you have to be huge fans of them. You can make your own political decisions, but they're not exactly cookie cutter people. They are, I mean, I think no, that is Scott true. Morrison that is, is, a, true. is a values he's, person, but he's also a pragmatist. He's very much a values person. Conviction um, politician. He, uh, I think Daggy he's a, dad, good, you know, yeah, that's his brand. I think he's good at kind of articulating what he thinks. And Anthony Albanese. Easy. He wears his values all over. Now, I know people have said, oh, you know, Labor's sold out since the election. I think Anthony Albanese does have some lines in the sand as it's as it's That's spoken. true. And I'm not, I don't mean to denigrate many of the politicians who are there. I think some of them are terrific people and they have terrific values. Um, but I do think there's a way parties operate, which is around talking points. And there's a, an internal discipline applied that doesn't really allow people to emerge as they would want to on mm. some things. And I think that's a shame in a way. And someone like Tim Fisher really couldn't be taught that, I don't think. No. I think our culture has changed too. Think about some of the things we loved about Bob Hawke, like the larrikin, oh, look well, how he drinks now, a beer. You know, right. That's exactly my point. So we don't really reward this kind of stuff anymore. And I, I don't lament that because I think some of the, the behaviours, I'm not reflecting just on Bob Hawke, but, you know, some of it was, hey, guys, we need to check the way we're doing yeah. stuff. Uh, maybe this is a bit kooky, but some of the things we romanticise about the past, I think we love to romanticise the past and bag everything everything about sure, the Sure, that's true. But I do think a lot of us really get a smile on our face when we hear the likes of Jackie Lambie or Glenn Lazarus or, or some of these independents and minor party people that have come up are refreshing because you can sort of, you can watch them learning on the job for a start and they speak like a lot of people speak and they reflect what a lot of people think. And it's, it is refreshing to see that. Now, maybe when you've got a party room of 50, 60, 70 people, you can't have them all doing that. But, you know, thank heavens for Tim Fisher, really. Thank heavens. In, in many fronts. Absolutely. All right, time for us to go. Goodbye, one and all. We'll be back next week for more party room fun. Our questions, always welcome. We love them. Record them if you want. Tweet them at us. Email them to us, thepartyroom at abc.net.au or hashtag thepartyroom. You know the drill. Subscribe, rate, review, recommend. You know, we, we're, we're an old kid on the block now, this podcast, so we need you to boost us, tell people about us. We want to... Make us look fresh yeah, and Yeah, that's new really and what I'm asking. <laughs> and, and we are. See you, friend. See you, PK. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.